Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Howdy. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I am an agribusiness recruiter, and it's really my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. I'm particularly enjoying this series we're doing called Accelerating Ag Tech, where we're profiling exciting ag tech startups as well as the accelerator programs that have helped make them successful. Before I dive into today's episode, I want to remind you we're part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network, so if you love ag podcasts and blogs and vlogs, head over to farmruralag.com for more of those. Hey, it's been a long time since I have read an iTunes review on this show, and I want to get back to that because there's been some that have been particularly nice, and I really appreciate all of those of you who have taken 30 seconds to rate and review this show. Uh, this one's way back in May. I don't think I've read this one yet. It's from uh, D. Devitt, uh, D-E-V-I-T-T. Uh, he says, best ag podcast out there. Well, thank you very much for that. Says, Tim, keep up the great work. Your topics are timely, thorough, and it is obvious you have prepped for each interview. The direction of the series is a great idea. I enjoyed the blockchain series and am now enjoying discussion on sustainability. Thanks for exploring it from different points of view. Hey, appreciate that. And, and thank all of you who have just taken a little bit of time to go rate and review the show. It really does help kind of get the word out and validate uh, this program for people looking for agricultural content, because uh, we do want to keep an open-minded approach, as, as he sort of mentioned in that review. Well, on to today's episode, one of my favorite classes in college, believe it or not, this is true, uh, is nematology, which is the study of nematodes. These are microscopic worms that are actually the most abundant multicellular organism on the planet. So it's pretty amazing. They have found these things all the way from a mile deep into the soil, still living. And they have also found them in 40,000-year-old, I want to say, uh, Russian ice that have just been kind of cryogenically frozen. I don't think that's the right term, but that's where my mind goes have been frozen in there and then kind of revived back to life. Amazing uh, organisms, but the reason why you don't hear too much about them is most of them are microscopic. Well, while being amazing organisms, they, they can either be beneficial to agriculture or can be a pest in agriculture. And our guests today are going to talk about both, actually, uh, utilizing nematodes for beneficial purposes, but then also uh, trying to fight nematodes, plant parasitic nematodes in an agricultural context. We have on the show today the co-founders of a very exciting startup called called Farinim. Uh, we have on the, the CEO, Dr. Fatma Kaplan, as well as the COO, Mr. Cameron Schiller, to talk about how Farinim got started and how they are using really interesting biological pheromones to get nematodes to do what we want them to do. And it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, you're about to hear some stuff that'll just kind of blow your mind about what is microscopically going on. It's kind of like microscopic biological warfare and the way that they are using pheromones to communicate messages to these nematodes of exactly what they want them to do. So, so cool. Uh, they are also a part of Indie Bio, which is the accelerator we're gonna be profiling in a follow-up episode. Enjoy this interview with Fatma Kaplan and Cameron Schiller. When I was doing a postdoc at the University of Florida, I identified the first mate-finding pheromone of C. elegans, which is the model nematode. Then I was hired by 
USDA to apply this pheromone technology to plant parasitic nematodes, particularly root knot nematodes. This was the time also methyl bromide was phased out and farmers were very worried about what to do uh, about plant, uh, plant parasitic nematodes. And this was also a great opportunity because the USDA lab I was in uh, expert with pheromones, uh, but not an expert on limited pheromones. So I had a unique skill to bring into the group and also uh, complement our skills how to control plant parasitic nematodes. Uh, while I was there, I also uh, introduced to other nematodes. These are the good nematodes. They infect insects. And we found out that uh, they also use pheromones to communicate with each other. One of the pheromones I identified at that time is a dispersal pheromone, which tells the um, beneficial, these are the good guys, that they're too crowded, they don't have enough food, they need to go out search for a new insect. And right about the time uh, we were finalizing this, USDA was shrinking, and uh, I thought this was a really good idea, and I mentioned it to Cameron. So as we were going along, I decided that we would start a company to pursue this project further, to develop both the beneficial nematode pheromones as a product, and also to pursue um, pheromones as a method of controlling plant parasitic nematodes. Right about the same time, pretty much everything came at the same time. I met our collaborators, and this is another USDA branch. They uh, saw our publication, and they asked me whether I was interested in pursuing the beneficial nematode pheromones any further. I said yes. And these collaborators, uh, one of them was at the USDA uh, in Byron, Georgia, and he was working with beneficial nematodes, and he actually had field experience and how much the farmers were frustrated, and he was connected to farmers. And he had the skills, the other side, I would say greenhouse and field uh, trials that we weren't uh, expert to bring a product to the market. Now, I was doing the chemistry and the lab and the nematode behavior with pheromones, and we had collaborators who had expert in field biology and greenhouse trials, and they also have helped other companies to bring the nematode products to the market, and we thought we really had the whole spectrum to bring a product to the market. And before we get too far here, because I, I want to make sure that we make this real for everybody who's going to be listening to this, for those who are not either entomologists or nematologists in the audience, can can you explain what a what a pheromone is? Pheromones are signals that are used um, among many organisms. It is released from one member and affects the behavior of the other members of the same species. It's been used for a long time for, with, for controlling insects. And if you've heard about pheromones, you've probably heard about them in reference to insect sex attractants. So they're very successfully used actually to control insect pests. And we thought the same concept can be applied to control nematodes. And actually, this has been taught in 1960s when it was very popular for the insect pheromones. And, but the nematode pheromones were a lot more challenging. And way in the past, in 1960s, the analytical chemistry equipments weren't really sensitive enough. So many of the scientists quit because they realized it was such a small amount and it would be very difficult for anyone to get enough uh, pheromone to identify the structure. So in 2004, I was very lucky because right about the time 
the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory in Florida developed a uh, test probe that was one of the most sensitive probes in the world. So that helped us to identify the structure of this uh, pheromone. Right. The pheromones that we work with are active in very, very, very minute concentrations. And they're very hard to detect uh, out in the wild, so to speak. So in order to find them, Fama had to develop some very specialized techniques. She actually had to grow the C. elegans nematode in, I believe it was one liter, two liter. Oh, we used actually a four million nematodes to collect their secretions to identify the pheromones. I think we already answered the question and we started moving on yeah. to the second point. No, no, I think that's interesting. So I have to ask, how does one collect nematode secretions? <laughs> oh, that actually. So we were thinking where the nematodes were found and how could we collect this? And eventually we said, well, they're aquatic animals because in the soil they go with the water. So the more likely they would communicate it, it's probably a water-soluble so we targeted a compound that would be soluble in water. So we placed them in water, and for about an hour, we incubated them. And the water uh, where they were in would contain the signal. And we found that the secretions, the ones that are in the water, give activity right about the time when they turn it uh, when they turn into sexual maturity and when they're sexually mature. We thought, okay, we are on the right trail. Hmm. And the secretions that had um, from the nematodes that were sexually mature uh, mature had the activity and the ones that were uh, younger life stages that wasn't sexually mature didn't have any activity on the male. And we thought, okay, we are on the right track. Then we collected whole bunch of them, and we also knew it was in water. Uh, we did have a lot of tests before we decided where and how we should collect the pheromones from nematodes. No, that's great. I'd like to take this uh, and look at it from a whole different perspective, and let's look at it from the perspective of, of the farmer, of the grower. And I guess my, my first question along that lines is, What's a farmer going to see? Just pick a, a, a typical crop that would have this nematode problem. And, and what's a farmer going to see that's going to give him or her an indication that they have a nematode problem? They're going to see plants that are not as vigorous as they should be. They're going to see lower yields by a factor of about 30 to 40 percent. And they are, if they, uh, with root knot nematode at least, if they pull the plant up, it's going to look like the roots have cancer. Actually, we had a personal experience with root knot nematode. We lived in Florida, and Florida is a heaven for nematodes, any kind of nematodes. They have lots of nematodes that are problem. And one day we thought we had this huge pumpkin, uh, uh, pumpkin seed, and it's supposed to grow a huge pumpkin for us. And we planted it. It's a very nice and sandy soil. The weather is really nice and moist. And we would have this giant flowers and we would have little fruit. It would never turn into a big pumpkin. We eventually uh, decided that this plant will never give us a fruit and just took the root out of it. The whole root system was like as if it had a cancer. It was full of root, not nematode. So they're hard to miss. Hmm. That's true. And when you, pull up the, when you pull up a plant that's got root, not nematode in it, you know immediately, especially if the infestation is bad. We also had a co-op um, who uh, grew organic uh, food and we used to buy from there. And she also had a PhD actually uh, in plant pathology. And we were talking to her. She says, one day there's a patch in her garden. Nothing would grow. 
And she said she had it tested. It turns out that it, it, it was a nematode. So sometimes plants can grow depending on the density, but the yield will definitely go down. The yeah, yield will go down, the growth gets bad, the plant turns yellow. It, it's, you can't necessarily put your finger on what the problem is because you can't see these things unless you can see the root knots. But you can certainly see the results. It's just plants can't take up as much nutrients, they do not do as well, and your gardening or farming gets very frustrating. Would a typical farmer see this while growing a crop and take action, say, hey, send a soil sample in, they they look at it under the microscope, see that there are these root knot nematodes in there, and then uh, would be able to apply your pheromone? Or does it have to happen more kind of proactively? Oh, that's a very good question. Our target for the to control plant parasitic nematodes is to put the pheromones in the seed coat. But actually, one thing I want to say first is, yes, a typical farmer, if he sees something like this, he very well might go out and take a sample of the plant that's got a problem and the soil that it's growing in, put it in a bag and ship it off to a lab, most likely in the the state's university system, to have them check to see what's in there, because it's provided by the extension services of uh, most universities. And that would uh, tell them what they're dealing with so that they could target their response better. As far as our pheromones go, we've got a plan to use pheromones as a seed treatment. So it covers the seed and you put it into the seed with this treatment into the ground and this is going to repel the nematodes while the seed is getting established. The reason we also taught seed treatment is it can also enhance the existing uh, seed treatment against against the uh, plant parasitic nematodes. For example, the seed coat might have a biological. If we also have the pheromone in it, and once the farmers put them in the field, they don't necessarily know how many nematodes in the field. And with our pheromone, it would repel the fer- uh, nematodes away from the plant roots by telling them this host is already taken. And let's say there are 100 nematodes, and if we repelled 70 of them, there would be 20. And now the biological control agents can take care of, let's say, 20 nematodes. These are all hypothetical numbers. And if, if any of the uh, nematodes would come back, now we have active uh, another biological control agent that would kill them so the plant would be saved. So it would uh, enhance the other uh, biological control agents or any of the other nematocytes. But our first product, you're targeting a different kind of nematode. That would be a good nematode. These are the nematodes, they attack insects, and they're used as biological control agents. But their efficacy is not as good as they should be. Yeah, they actually are already commercially available. You can buy them from various different manufacturers and distributors. So for that particular one, we're using it as a pretreatment. In the absence of pheromones, and this is true when the farmers uh, buy these nematodes, they don't, uh, these nematodes do not disperse anymore. With the pheromone, it's a pretreatment. We treat these uh, nematodes. Now they're actively searching for an insect. Once they get the pretreatment, they're put in large tanks to spray the uh, greenhouse or around the trees to control the insect pests, and these nematodes would be searching for the next three to four days actively uh, for an insect. That's how we are Im- able to improve the efficacy. 
Okay, I want to make sure I understand that. If if I'm understanding, to put it in layman's terms, you're basically giving a pheromone to to the beneficial nematode to to make them hungry, for lack of a better word, for for an insect host, and and the nematodes are being sprayed on the plant, hungry, and they're going to find the insects and and, and uh, essentially kill the insect. That's correct. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. Actually, we talked to a couple of uh, beneficial nematode producers. They are as excited as we are. What do you think that the difference will be between a, a nematode that's that's just applied and one that has been treated with the pheromone and then applied? We actually recently completed greenhouse trials, and this is a third-party research, and we can improve the insects, uh, the nematode's ability to kill insects from 40% to 70%. Or 80%. These are in greenhouses, and we are hoping that we are going to get the same efficacy in the field. And another good thing about the biologicals is we can actually improve their search ability even when the conditions are not optimal. This is in optimal conditions, we can increase the um, effectiveness from 40 to 70%. In suboptimal conditions, we can actually improve their dispersal rate. Currently, we are collecting the data. We don't really know how many uh, percent we can increase at suboptimal conditions, but that's really, really important for the biological contribution effectiveness. What are the top uh, crops for for that application? What what would be your, your top markets for that? Well, we are targeting right now greenhouse crops, and these are things like tomatoes and cucumbers and cut flowers. Things that anybody that wants to keep, grow something in a contained area, it's got a high-value crop like tomatoes, cucumbers, cut flowers, and anything else you grow in a greenhouse. It could be med- medicinal plants. Yeah. Then our next target is fruit and nut orchards for the insects that reside in the soil, or they might have a life stage in the soil. They might, for example, attack the fruit, but they would have one life stage in the soil. That would be our next step for this particular product. And then we also have emerging markets, for example, indoor agriculture. You probably heard it in the news and they usually get funded quite a bit. And we think they will also have in the future, very near future, will have problems with insects. And yep. we would like to serve to that market. Too. Yeah, essentially, these indoor and urban agriculture outfits are all growing like greenhouses do. And greenhouses have, have pest problems no matter what. They eventually get some sort of bugs. And so that is an emerging market for us. And your, your product that would be a seed treatment to actually repel the plant parasitic nematodes, is, is that on the market yet? No. Uh, okay. uh, we are developing prototypes for it and we are raising funds for it. And we are also recruiting our uh, strategic partners. We do have a lot of interest uh, from, uh, for that particular product. And we could tell there is actually a need. Many of the seed companies we talk to, they are very interested in the product. We currently stay, um, one of our brands stays in Davis, California, and the HM Klaus UC Davis uh, Life Sciences uh, Innovation, Center. Innovation Center. And the seed companies have been very, very helpful to us. And they do have actually growth chambers that can do seed uh, germination tests, and they do have pilot scale seed treatment uh, equipment that we can have access to. Everything's right here in Davis for us to do the seed treatment trials that we need to do. And so with, with that, would that product be probably geared towards specialty crops as well, vegetables and, and that sort of thing? 
right now we are certain since uh, our incubator HM Klaus is part of a large seed company that is, specializes in specialty crops. Like they produce 60% of all the pumpkins that are planted in the United States. The uh, since we're there, we have a an incentive to work on these the specialty crops like that. But we see these things being applied to everything from corn and soybean and wheat and everything else we can imagine. So our ultimate goal is actually to uh, bring the ferment technology to row crops. That's right. Which is not currently in the market, but that's our vision to go there. I love it. I um, <laughs> I have a confession to make. In high school, for for a high school project, I had a pumpkin patch. I had a heck of a time producing uh, the amount of pumpkins that that I was told I should be able to produce on. I think it was three quarters of an acre I had, and so I actually had to buy pumpkins from another local grower and truck them in and put them <laughs> in my pumpkin patch so that people could come. By. I wonder if I had a nematode problem that whole time. I just didn't know. I, it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. You, you may have. Yeah, there's so many uh, different plant parasitic nematodes. Sometimes uh, some of them are sedentary; they just stuck to the roots. Some actually come and go and feed on them. They can do actually a lot of damage. I did everything I could between trying to build organic matter, trying to increase the available nutrients, and you know fertilize. I, I scouted for pests, and I just couldn't figure it out. So it's possible. Way back when I had an, I had a nematode problem in high school. I wish I, I wish I would have met you back then. I want to make sure I ask about about uh, your accelerator experience. Um, we are in this series called Accelerating Ag Tech, and I really want to get a feel for how accelerators can make a difference in a business. So, if you wouldn't mind sharing your story about how your experience with the accelerators has has helped your business grow, well, being at Indie Bio plugged us into a huge network of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and business people that we simply didn't have access to before. And being able to talk with these people and get ideas, bounce ideas off of them, is invaluable. And in our case, it wasn't just the U.S. farmers and U.S. customers. We had a venture capitalist or uh, company um, high-level decision makers from all over the world. One of the customers we have, we mentioned about this idea – with the plant parasitic nematodes, but we said this a lot earlier. And they said, well, we could do co-product development. That's something we didn't really think about, and that was from Europe. And we also figured it out that our main customer was in Europe. It wasn't something we expected it would come out of Accelerator, but it did. And we got to talk to venture capitalists from India, from Japan, from many of them were from Europe, from China. China, many of the Chinese companies. There was one market we never thought we would actually have an application for beneficial nematodes actually came out with the talk with a Chinese poultry company, and they wanted to control dung beetle. It would have never occurred to us. Hmm. And bonding, also bonding with other companies, and they had about 15 companies, CEOs, and we're all going through the same thing. And we helped each other, and they would introduce the VCs they talked to or what their experience, what they learned. And even after the accelerator, we still communicate with many of the VCs and uh, uh, many of the CEOs and ask them about questions and whether they had interacted 
with those funding sources. And they also introduced us too. They said, well, here is a VC um, who's interested in this area or ag, would you be interested in uh, being introduced to? And we say yes. Sometimes we have a list of VCs that we don't really know, but having a warm intro makes a big difference. So we can go back to our accelerator, they're still supporting us, and say, hey, here are the VCs, uh, do you know any of them, and can you make a warm introduction? Also, the, the accelerator itself is plugged into a worldwide network of people and companies that we can tap into if we need help with anything. Uh, if we need to, a advice on something, we can get on to one of the many communication channels we have with the accelerators, other companies, and ask them about it. Yeah, it, it sounds like the connections that they were able to make for you were extensive. Do you have to know kind of what you're looking for, though? I mean, did you say, hey, does anyone know of a Chinese poultry company that, that might want to work with dung beetle? I mean, uh, that seems really random. How does a connection like that come about? Does somebody say, oh, you work with pheromones, so you ought to talk to this person that's worked with pheromones or this investor that is interested in biological space? Or how does I mean, how does that work? In the case of the Chinese company, one thing about being at IndieBio was that there are lots and lots of investors that come through. And there was a group of Chinese investors that were coming through. They were looking for companies to invest in. And when they saw our demonstration of what the beneficial nematodes can do, they were really inspired. They immediately recognized that the larvae that our nematodes were infecting were very similar to the dung beetle larvae. And that's because they were, well, they weren't beetle larvae, they were moth larvae. But larvae are larvae. And they, he made the connection between a big problem that he has at his poultry factory and the solution that we got for insects. So we thought that was a, he was really excited about that. Maybe we talked to them for quite a bit about what we could do and how we could work with, with them. One of the things is it's like being at the right place and at the right time, being in an accelerator. At least this is for IndieBio, for mm. their setting. And their companies actually come there to look for new technologies. And the place they know they can find those companies to invest in is accelerators and incubators. You have the customer who wants to buy versus the small companies going out and trying to convince people. And they, like Cameron mentioned, in the poultry company's case, we were doing a demo. We always had a demo because IndieBio also have a wet lab space and we had the uh, insect we do have our own experiments, but they were not visually really great because you can't really show the pheromones. Yeah. But yeah, we also it's hard to show nematodes that are living in the soil. But because they're microscopic, but we also had to showcase what the nematodes can do. That was for the demo, and we would explain. We also had the uh, screens to show these microscopic uh, nematodes, and they're magnified. Oh, here's how they um, disperse, and this is the end result. And in some cases, people make connection and they said, oh, you know, we have this problem because there's no way we would be able to go out and say, oh, dung beetle is a problem for poultry industry. We have no idea. Yes. And another thing is when you're in an incubator, it's also a credential. In some ways, people see, oh, you know, you're this company and uh, associated with IndieBio, and they get in touch with you. Oh, you're one of the IndieBio companies, and here is the area we are interested. Can we have a talk? Then uh, when we talk, and all of a sudden, you know, there are many brainstorming. They said, oh, we wanted to talk to you for this reason, but it seems like it can solve this problem. 
How do you all decide and, and maintain your focus? I mean, you're working with the, the, the most abundant multicellular organism in, on the planet. Uh, it seems like there's so many different directions you can go with it. Um, how do you nail down the strategy of deciding what specific problems are worth your time and resources to, to attack? Well, we've always been focused on getting a product out for the plant parasitic nematodes. That's been the driving goal of our company from the beginning. We had to get a little bit diverted by the uh, beneficial nematodes because it's just so they're a much faster product to get to market. One of the drawbacks that we have with our plant parasitic nematode product is that it is subject to regulation. But the beneficial nematodes, the United States Department of Agriculture considers them so safe that they don't regulate them. Neither does the EPA. So we don't have to worry about regulations with them. And furthermore, since our, our pheromone product is not technically a pesticide, it is just a modifier for the beneficial nematodes, it's not regulated either. But when you put it onto a seed treatment, then it becomes a pesticide. And this is simply a legality thing. And then we got to go through a bunch of regulatory hurdles. What we thought was the best way for us to get to revenues and show that these pheromones could actually be used in a valuable product would be to add them to the beneficial nematodes. The other reason we selected the high-value specialty crop is because we're uh, the first to bring the nematode pheromones to market, we also have to develop the procedures to uh, do the production. So our cost is not going to be as cheap as many of the others. So the, this market would allow us to survive. So a lot of financial decisions helped us to give the priority which product which uh, we should focus. Yeah. 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 So when we were talking with one strategic partner about our seed product, and he said, well, let's put it on 50,000 seeds and for a test run. And I started thinking about it for a few minutes and thought, 50,000 is an awful lot. <laughs> and that's an awful lot of product that we have to have in order to do the seed treatment. And I don't think we can make it just right now. <laughs> but at the same time, one other lucky thing is when we started with Beneficial Limitus, we also got the right um, partners to bring this product to the market. And with the seed treatment, we thought this is our ultimate goal. So we developed a good network for the seed treatment product. We actually developed a really nice network for yeah. our future customers and seed companies are willing to write us letter of support. And we got to talk to their scientists and how to bring in what is the best approach. That uh, the beneficial nematodes of product development, we learned a lot more how the process would work with plant parasitic nematodes. So we are also applying all the knowledge we gained from beneficial nematodes to plant parasitic nematodes and to bring the seed treatment product to the market. Has there been any instances in the past of, of nematodes or I guess even insects growing resistant to pheromones or is that even a, con a concern for pheromones at all? That is a very good question. Actually, many of the companies do ask what about this pheromone? Would they develop resistance? Our first product, we don't think that is going to happen. The reason for that is when we treat the uh, nematodes with the pheromones, they go out and search for an insect, and that provides a reproduction opportunity. Any of the nematodes that do not respond, we're not going to find an insect to reproduce. So there's a positive selection for those nematodes to um, go and find an insect. We don't really think that will happen. 
with the uh, fair code, there's a potential that might happen because in this case, we're convincing the nematodes not to feed on the plant. So the ones that are moving away are not going to reproduce. The ones that become the uh, sensitized, there's a chance they will produce. And they, but hopefully that will also mean that they are not as fit for reproduction. But at the same time, because it is their innate social interaction, there is a, there's always a positive reason for them to recognize communication. Because in the future, if they don't recognize the communication, they're not going to survive. But at the same time, many of these uh, pest control options, we have to rotate and need multiple solutions. Same thing would be true for chemical pesticides, too, right. they develop, and for many of the other pesticides. That's why we need more than one solution. Last question, and then I'll let you all go because I'm running up against the, the time I asked of you. What is kind of on top of your mind as far as the next strategic step for Farinim? We actually negotiated our next step is we are doing customer demos for greenhouse trials, and we are targeting trips control. That's it, with Nemestema, And it turns out that uh, trips actually develop resistance to uh, chemical pesticides. And the farmers actually do need the ones we talked to greenhouse growers a month ago. Uh, it was a lettuce grower really wanted to have a good solution to control uh, trips. And we talked to other scientists that it, the market really needs a solution to control trips. And one we negotiated in Netherlands and one we negotiated in Israel. And let's see. Yep. Maybe stay tuned for the good result to actually uh, solve a market's problem for trip. Very cool. Well, we will follow along. If somebody does want to reach out and kind of learn more about Farinim, uh, where's the best place to send them? All of our contact information is on our website, and you'll find my email address, a phone that leads directly to me, uh, Carl Schiller, and you will find our the addresses for our two locations. I'm currently in the Davis location in California. We also have a lab in Alachua, Florida, in the Sid Martin Biotech Institute. So we're all very close and communicate fairly frequently. If anyone reaches to any of the members, uh, we will be communicating right. and they'll reach out. Hope you found that as enjoyable as I did. I thought that was so cool about how they're using nematodes, both fighting plant parasitic nematodes, but also trying to promote and, and add these beneficial nematodes to fight pests. So cool stuff. Thank you so much to Fatima and for Cameron for being on the show. Really enjoyed that. Hey, if there's anything I didn't ask them and you'd like to ask on a follow-up episode, you can always go over to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag. Leave me a little voicemail with an introduction to you and your question. We'll get it answered on a future episode of follow-up Friday. We are using the follow-up Friday currently for these accelerator profiles, but we'll make sure we get you on there at some point. So would love to hear from you there. Thanks so much. We'll be back with more accelerating ag tech next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com. That's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.